Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. Uh, so let me open in prayer, and we're going to dive right into God's Word. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Thank you for your goodness that we sang about earlier. Thank you, God, as we sang the hymn of heaven, Lord, thinking about heaven and the future that's before us. God, in this moment, on this day, as we mention the rain and the cold, we know it is spring. We know summer is coming. We know the beauty of that is coming, and we look forward to it. In the same manner, we're here in life, walking in faith. Many people are coming in today, God, with trials, temptations, and difficulties. Burdens are weighing heavy on their heart. Lord, I pray today you would encourage us wherever we find ourselves today. God, that you are with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. But today, in this moment, you are speaking to us through your word. That your scripture will come alive to us. Your spirit would illuminate and help us to understand the truth that is before us. God, change us, transform us. Help this not to be simply a required activity. But God, that we would recommend and we would find that you uh, are, are so alive in our lives today. We're reminded that you are alive. We just celebrated that in Easter a few weeks ago. Help us to live that in this moment. Teach us, God, from your word. Encourage us in your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Second <clears throat> Samuel chapter 15. Today we're going to be walking through several chapters focusing a little bit more on chapter 15, and then we'll highlight 16, 17, and 18. Because I really wanted to connect them all together to get the real rise and fall of Absalom. So before we start reading, as we will read through kind of the first chapter here in a moment, last week we uh, covered some tough stuff, maybe. Uh, Some of the kids, or my kids were talking about it a lot too, but what did you get out of the message last week? And they're like, I don't know, you talked about Encanto, so that's all I remember right now. But uh, we don't talk about Bruno, we talked about last week. And so those of you who weren't here, uh, you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. Uh, we, we, We talked through some more challenging topics. As these are times, many certain things in our families, that there are things we don't talk about. We don't talk about the Brunos, we push them aside. We try to ignore them and act like they're not there, and yet that sin, that unconfessed uh, area of our life, that, that, that thing that we ignore, it, it will fester, it will grow, and it will only cause more and more challenges and difficulties as time goes. And so at times, there are those Brunos that we avoid, and we, we remembered in the, the grave sin of Amnon and his lust for sex and this lust for so many things became his downfall. And today there is this Absalom in a similar manner, his absolute lust for power will overcome him and eventually become his downfall. We remembered last week where sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And I I don't know about you, if you find it comforting in some ways, that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat life. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) The Bible is very real. 
There's reality presented to you and you are going to be presented with more reality today of what life is really like at its nitty gritty and the dark side of sin. And it is up to you to ultimately, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to react to that? How will you be changed by the reality of the story of Amnon and then hear the story of Absalom, the rise and fall? Because every good story has an ultimate moral underneath it, right? The moral of the story, right? You know, Aesop's fables. There's one of those classic fables. One of them is the one that, it's a very short one, but essentially there were two roosters in the barnyard, right? Maybe today it's maybe more accurate in the spring right now as I'm always seeing these, these uh, turkeys fighting. You ever see that? You know, the turkeys are constantly fighting these days. There's two roosters in the barnyard, essentially. One rooster was fighting the other rooster for control of the barnyard. Who was going to rule the roost? And ultimately, these roosters were fighting out in the grass and in the field, and they were fighting and going after it, one after another. And finally, one rooster has beaten the other one and put him down, and that rooster uh, is, climbs up, it flies up to the top of the um, <coughs> climbs up to the top of the hen house and celebrates his victory over the other rooster in front of everyone so that all can see. He proudly flaps his wings and he crows with all his might and tells the world about his victory as the chief rooster. But of course, what he doesn't know is all that clamoring and all that noise and all that public exposure of his great victory and all that pride He didn't see the eagle that was circling overhead. And he heard the boasting of that Chanticleer and the swooped down and carried that rooster off to his nest. His rival saw what had happened and came crawling out of his corner and took his place as the master of the farmyard. The moral is the pride always goes before a fall, right? Today's message is entitled Pride Goes Before a Fall. C.S. Lewis says it this way that a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you, that eagle circling ahead. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And since the kids are in, the cla- in, in here today, I've used this illustration in the past, uh, but it's a story we used to read our kids all the time, the story of little bunny foo-foo. Remember that one? Little bunny Fufu has a great moral at the end of that story. I don't know if you remember that. Little bunny Fufu hopping through the forest, right? Picking up the field mice and bopping them on the head. Some of you are already filling it in, right? Little bunny Fufu hopping. And then down comes good fairy, right? And good fairy says, little bunny Fufu, I don't like your attitude. Scooping up the field mice and bopping them on the head. I'm going to give you three chances to change. And if you don't... What's going to happen? Well, this story, the one we have, is I will turn you into a goon, right? What's a goon? Well, you find out at the end. Little bunny Fufu has a moment where he changes, right? And he goes the opposite direction and he turns from his wicked ways and he repents of his pride, right? Is that the story? No, no. Little bunny Fufu does what he wants because of his attitude and he goes and scoops up the goblins or the tigers and he bops them on the head and down comes good fairy and says, I don't like your attitude. You have two more chances. You have one more chance. And then finally at the end, little bunny Fufu does not repent from his ways. 
and continues on his path. And uh, his pride gets in the way, and ultimately Good Fairy comes back down one last time and says, little bunny foo-foo, I've had enough. Good Fairy has enough. She comes down and says, your three chances are gone. I've given you chances to change, and now I will turn you into a goon. And poof, he turns the hare into a goon. And so the moral of this story is hare today, goon tomorrow, right? You ever heard that one? Some of you are hearing that for the first time. Yes, right? Hair today, goon tomorrow. And the reason I chose that is that pride, the pride of little bunny foo-foo. You'd be like, wow, what did you learn at church today? The pride of little bunny foo-foo. But that pride to, to, to not change his ways, to continue down his path. There's also a double meaning here. Hair, H-A-R-E, also can be turned here, this hair, H-A-I-R, which is kind of a central element of the story today. You'll find out here in a moment. But in 2 Samuel 14, 25 through 28, it talks about Absalom's hair. Do you remember this? Absalom was quite the handsome fellow. He was so handsome that everybody knew how handsome he was, and he wanted to make sure everybody knew how good looking he was. And then every year he would grow these locks of love, right? This hair would be flowing. And the scripture goes at great lengths to describe Absalom's hair. It's like this is an odd thing to be talking about. He describes the hair. In fact, every year, Absalom would cut off his hair and they would weigh his hair of how much he had. And it was just a slight little foreshadowing where if you're reading along in chapter 14, you're like, why are we talking about Absalom's hair and what's the big deal? Why are we talking about how handsome and good looking and strong uh, Absalom is and how he doesn't have a single flaw from the top of his head to the bottom of his toes? He doesn't have a single flaw. And so we we start to see that this is setting the scene for the kind of character that Absalom is. The attention that he's seeking. The pride that is infecting him. Absalom was all about his hair. He was ultimately the kind of guy that makes hair contact before he makes eye contact. You know what I mean? Right? I told you I'd have a hair joke to the staff today. They didn't think it was all that great. But uh, he had trouble hearing others over the volume of his hair, right? It's okay. So now see, it doesn't land very good. All right. His hair was ultimately his crown, though, right? And seriously, the sense of his hair becoming his crown. He wanted that to be central. He wanted himself to be the most powerful. Everyone would notice. Everyone would see him. And it would ultimately be his downfall. And you'll find out, maybe some of you already know, we're skipping ahead to how Absalom dies. It's in a pretty extraordinary story. So before all that, before we skip ahead, uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and asked, what city are you from? If he replied, your servants is from one of the tribes of Israel. Absalom said to him, hey, look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. So what Absalom is saying about his father, David. David is uh, his father. He says, he added, if only somebody would appoint me judge in the land. Like, if only I was in charge. You ever had something? Then anyone who had a grievance or a dispute would come to me, and I would make sure he received justice. David doesn't know what he's talking about. David doesn't know what he's doing. However, I do. Look at verse 6. Uh, Verse 5, whenever a person approached to pay homage to him, Absalom reached out his hand and took hold of him and kissed him. 
Verse 6, Absalom did, did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You can see this starting to happen. Verse 1, we get a little bit more of an insight as to Absalom's character. Verse 1, he says that he got a chariot for himself and would ride it around and make 50 men run in front of him wherever he went. Absalom's coming. Absalom's coming. His head was pretty big. It's about as big as his hair. He would run wherever. And uh, one commentator said that ultimately the landscape of Jerusalem and the surrounding area was not suitable for chariots. It's a very hilly and like bumpy hillside and area and city. It's not this kind of Egyptian flat sand area. It's very hilly. And so for him to have a chariot is not really to be speed, to have speed or uh, to, because it's pragmatic. It was so that everyone looked at him. So he would be higher, so that he would be noticed and look important. The same reason some of you trick out all your cars and trucks, right? No, joking, sorry. But it's the, it's the idea, right? We, we don't do it for, because we need to or because it's better, but because we want people to notice us, right? He, he ultimately then starts running a campaign. He becomes the politician. Absalom the politician, he probably starts handing out t-shirts, vote for Absalom, is a vote for action or something, whatever, right? He's he's got a campaign slogan, he starts talking to the people that are coming, hey, you know, uh, this guy, David, you know, you're coming to see him, but he's so busy, he doesn't have time for you, and nobody uh, really is able to talk to him, but you can talk to me, I'll share with, man, if somebody would just put me in charge, I'll tell you what, I get things done around here, man. You know, it's just David, he's just so, he's so, you know, busy for you, but, but I'm not. And so he starts gaining popular vote and he starts getting people to vote for him in some ways, right? He starts stealing their hearts, it says. He would steal their hearts and then he starts undermining David's leadership. He undermines his own father's leadership behind his father's back, tearing down his credibility and sowing seeds of discord and doubt and disunity. We know this happens on the job side with the boss or with churches and the elders and the pastor or whatever leadership structure you might find yourself in. You know that different people sow seeds of discord and disunity and discontent and constantly undermine the leadership that is going on. Absalom did this. Ultimately, he resented his father. And with just cause, one could say. His own father ignored him for many years and didn't want to see his own face. And so it was uh, in the root of bitterness that I believe goes so deep into one's soul, especially into this person of Absalom. This root of bitterness spread deep into the fabric of his life. Absalom was the one who took matters into his own hands when his father was negligent. David didn't do anything about Amnon's rape of Tamar and just ignored it and was a Bruno that we don't talk about. Absalom said, that's not okay. Two years later, he says, I'll fix this guy. And he brings Amnon and he murders Amnon in cold blood out of vengeance and out of revenge for his sister Tamar. Here we see that Absalom at the same can't sit back idly. He has to do things better. He knows more. It is his pride that becomes so big that he can't control it. David will eventually welcome Absalom back after he's banished from the palace and all this area. He welcomes him back, but it seems almost like it's a little bit too late because when he welcomes him back, he doesn't want to see him. David doesn't want to have any contact with him. He, they're living in the same city, really right next to each other, but doesn't want to see his face. So they never really resolve the situation or the conflict. The Bruno is never really discussed or talked about. 
They avoid it, they ignore it, and it causes the seed of bitterness and resentment into uh, Absalom's life that drives him to literally give his life to make sure his father notices him, to lead a revolt and a rebellion to get back at David. I think it's very much one of the motivations that he has internally. Now we could say, well, this is all David's fault, and we could say it's always the father's fault, and if, you have, if you're just a perfect parent, your kids will always do perfect things, right? But we know that that's not the truth. But we know that these two things are not separate either. We don't just say, well, it's all David's father or Absalom wouldn't have done this. No, no, no. Absalom is just as responsible for his sin and, and his decisions as David will be responsible for his sin and his decisions, and you'll see that here today. But I do want to just focus on this for a quick moment before we move on. The the fact of how important it is, especially for you as dads, to be involved in the life of your children. I'm not saying your children are going to lead a national revolt or something here in some ways, but, but how is it that we can be so similar to David? We can be so similar in our ways and our treatment of our children that we are too busy for them to even give them the light of day. We, we can't take time to pay attention to them. And ultimately, anything, the only thing your kids want from you is your attention. They are literally born craving your attention as my kids do all the time. Dad, look at me. Dad, look at me. Dad, look at me. And yeah, as they get older, they don't say those same things. But internally, they want your attention. They want your approval. They just want you to be proud of them. How, how, how much could that have possibly changed Absalom's direction if David would have simply allowed himself to be proud of Absalom while Absalom was still alive and make things right and to figure out the responsibility he had, yes, as the king of the nation, but also the father of his family. They crave attention. And yet so often we're too glued to our phones or our busy businesses or our lifestyle and hobbies to pay attention to the very children that just want to have a relationship with you. And you say, well, this happened and you don't understand that. I get it. I understand. There's a lot of difficulties. And for those of you who have parents that ignore you and treat you like nothing, the fact is that the word of God says that that God can be a father to the fatherless. Do you know that? That he, your heavenly father, never leaves you, never forsakes you. And he always listens to you. So go there first. And then find someone else in this church. It could be a father figure to you. I think that will go a long way. I can still remember. (coughs) Excuse me. I can still remember one of the last conversations I ever had with my father. Just days before he died. (coughs) I knelt down before him and he was, knew his time was short. He knew. And he said, Jordan, we love you because mom was in the room. We love you and I'm proud of you. I didn't always hear that from my dad. I just saw him do that in my life. Support me. He came to this church. He taught here in this place. He supported me every step of the way. He was my biggest champion in so many ways, Right? And to hear him just say, I'm proud of you, right? When was the last time you dads told your kids that you're proud of them? Makes a big difference. 
And again, I'm not trying to say that if David had done this, none of this would have happened. I'm not saying that it's always a like for like. I'd say from this chapter, we can learn a lot about what to do and what not to do and how important that is. And so I didn't want to go quickly through that. I wanted to just press into that for a moment. 15 verses 7 through 12, you see a situation that goes on. It says in verse 7, when four years had passed, Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. For your servant made a vow when I lived in Geshur of Aram, saying if the Lord really brings me back to Jerusalem, I'll go worship him in the Lord uh, to Hebron. David says, go in peace, the king said to him. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent agents, this is the secret agents, throughout the tribes of Israel with this message. When you hear the sound of the ram's horn, you are to say, Absalom has become king in Hebron. He sends secret agents with a secret message to lead a coup d'etat to lead an overthrow of the government. And then verse 11, 200 men of uh, Jerusalem went with Absalom. They had been invited, but they were going innocently for they did not know the whole situation. While they were offering sacrifices, Absalom sent for David's advisor, Ahithophel, to come to him. And the conspiracy grew strong. The people supporting Absalom continued to increase. The crowd starts growing. Then an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And verse 14, David said to the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee, we gotta get out of here or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly or he will overtake us quickly. Heap disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servant said to the king, whatever my lord the king decides, we are your servants. And the king set out, his entire household followed him, but he left behind 10 concubines to take care of the palace. The secret message goes out, the secret agents go out, David starts to get word of the coup d'etat that's about to happen. That is a sudden overthrow of government by usually a small group of persons or in previously positions of authority. Napoleon Bonaparte and many historical figures organized very similar things like this. To take over the government, to kind of subvert the current leadership, and to take control as the dictator would. To become the, the captain of the ship to take it over by an overthrow. Or that movie Captain Phillips where he says, I am the captain now. You know that line? That was, I love that. And he says that ultimately what Absalom's trying to do. I am the king now. Get out of here. And every arrogant, bloodthirsty dictator like this has an evil sidekick, right? And Ahithophel, this guy that gets his name thrown in here, is a, a trusty sidekick for an evil dictator. Now, I didn't tell the booth, I'm not sure if they have that family timeline we looked at last week, but if you could throw that up there, we have the timeline of David's tree. Look at that, they're so fast, they just do it wonderfully. Last week, we looked at Amnon and Absalom and Tamar. But if you look at that top corner up there, we have Bathsheba and Uriah. Uriah was killed by David because of his adultery with Bathsheba, and he tried to cover it up and kill him off. But we notice that Ahithophel is basically the grandfather to Bathsheba. And Ahithophel is this elder statesman that was serving David, but I think, and we are, uh, we are guessing at this, the word does not say, but I think Ahithophel is resenting David for the murder of, uh, of Uriah. The relationship there, no doubt, must have gone deep, and Ahithophel internally resented David because he was quick to jump on Absalom's side. As soon as Absalom came over there, Ahithophel left David's side essentially, stayed in the palace, and joined the cause of, Ahith- of Absalom. 
And so just wanted you to take notice of that. And last week we talked about the complicated nature of this family tree and all the discord it provides. And you'll see even today as that continues on. But in verses 13 through 17, David is fleeing and he has a really grave miscalculation. He miscalculates the absolute wickedness of of Ahithophel and of his son Absalom. And he leaves behind his concubines to care for the temple and the, uh, sorry, for the palace. And it's a foreshadowing because a grave wickedness is about to occur. And he undervalues that. He, he doesn't take care of the people that are in his responsibility. And he underestimates and miscalculates the wickedness of what's going on. <coughs> and so then what we have in verses 23 through 29, we have ultimately this funeral procession in a sense that goes on in the next coming Pat, the verses where David is leaving. He brings the Ark of the Covenant with him. They're weeping and crying as they leave the city. And as Absalom kind of takes over as they vacate, it's almost as if there's a funeral procession, a hearse with the Ark of the Covenant and David as the pastor or the leader leading and crying along the way. It's a complete reversal of what happened years before. When they entered, they conquered the city of Jerusalem. They went up Mount Zion. They brought the Ark of the Covenant, if you remember, in rejoicing and singing. This is the story when David is dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. There's happiness, there's joy, there's purity and unabashed worship before God. This is a complete reversal of that because of David's sin and the poor leadership that he's provided to the nation of Israel, now there's a descent from that top, that temple mount, that, that Zion. There's a descent to it. And as he descends, there's weeping and crying and sorrow over his sin. But yet, this is where we see a change in David. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 of 2 Samuel 15. We finally see David's heart broken. We haven't seen him pray in chapters and chapters. The early on in his life, we see him pray over and over. Finally, we see a change. Look at verse 25. The king instructed Zadok, the priest, return the ark of God to the city. He's like, why am I bringing the ark with me and my sin? I should leave the ark where it belongs. So if I find favor with the Lord, he will bring me back and allow me to see both it and its dwelling place. However, if he should say, I do not delight in you, then here I am. He can do with me whatever he pleases to me. That word here I am is one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's henani. It means here I am. I am here. I am all that I am before you. I'm here. Do with me what you will, Lord. Said by almost every major leader of Israel. Moses said it. It's said throughout the scripture in a variety of places. Jacob says it. Samuel says it, Isaiah says it, Hineni, Hineni, here I am, here I am, and here David finally reaches the end of his rope where he recognizes the Ark of the Covenant doesn't need to flee Jerusalem. It doesn't need to run from the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant flees from nobody. The Ark of the Covenant in God's presence can take care of himself. You remember the story of Dagon from the beginning of 1 Samuel. And so he returns the Ark. He runs in some ways, and yet he says, God's going to do with me what he wills. And then he looks down at verse 30. 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives in a very, in Olives, in a very Jesus Christ-like Garden of Gethsemane kind of moment. Verse 30, weeping as he ascended, his head is covered. He's walking barefoot and all the people are covering their heads and they went up weeping as they descended. There's great sorrow over the sin of the nation at this time. Verse 31, then someone reported to David, Ahithophel, your advisor, is among the conspirators with Absalom and And David says, Lord, and he prays, pleading. David pleaded with the Lord. Please turn the counsel of Ahithophel 
into foolishness. And then the king said to Ziba, and he moves on, and uh, the king, and he moves on, and he, and he continues, and he keeps praying. And then eventually, what's going to happen here is we're going to have him climbing the Mount of Olives, leaving the city. Absalom and his party comes in and takes over the city. And as he prays, as he pleads, David sends a spy, Hushai, back into the city to kind of be another advisor alongside Absalom. And that's when we come to 2 Samuel 16. And you'll notice in verse 20, and this is where the dark side of sin is presented to us, the wickedness and the power-hungry aspect of what Absalom has gone. He listens to Ahithophel and the wicked, evil advice that Ahithophel whispers into the ear of Absalom. Ahithophel whispers into Absalom's ear, you want to you show your father who's boss? You want to show the nation who's really in control? You, you want to show how big and, and powerful and strong you are? Then look what I tell you. You do what I say. Ahithophel whispers into Absalom's ear. Verse 20, Absalom said to Ahithophel, give me your advice. What should we do? Now that he's not sitting on the throne, Ahithophel replied to Absalom, sleep with your father's concubines whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all of Israel will hear that you have become repulsive to your father. Everyone with you will be encouraged. Do you see the twisted aspect of sin? This will bring encouragement to the people. What is going on? Verse 22, so they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof in public display for all, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. Now the advice of Hithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word of God. I mean, everybody listened to him. Such was the regard that both David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's advice. An absolute act of public wickedness and debauchery is, pl- is placed here in this, in this way. Absolute shameless pride. Ahithophel, the evil sidekick here, the J.R. Tolkien kind of two towers, worm tongue that is whispering into Theoden's ear. This this worm tongue that Ahithophel is, he whispers these evil things and Absalom agrees. And in this act of pure evil, this public brazen orgy, this lack of shame, the pride of shamelessness is presented before all of the nation. The sin will find you out. Notice, remember, God had told David, what you had done in secret will now be done in public. What you think you're hiding from everybody will one day come to the light. What you think nobody knows, you'll be found out one day. The fact is, nobody ever gets away with anything. The Lord is judge, and he is judge over all. Our culture in so many ways acts in this way that we don't need God, we don't need deity, we do what we want. We make the laws, morality is ours to control. Our pride is what is most important. We can do what we want with who we want whenever we want because there is no God. There is no one watching over us. There is no eagle circling ahead. We're looking down upon everyone else. We're in control. We're the captain of our soul and the master of our fate. That's what our culture would say. And yet we know the word of God says in in Proverbs 16, 18, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride will always go before a fall. The destruction and the justice here will, about to, will take place. Absalom will receive his just reward, you could say. Chapter 17, we have this battle between Ahithophel and Hushai. Hushai's David's spy. And Ahithophel's this evil, wicked guy here. And uh, Absalom is a clueless leader. He doesn't know what to do. So he asks his advisors, Ahithophel, what should I do? Now that David's on the run, what should we do? Ahithophel says, go chase David. 
kill him off. I got a couple thousand men right now. David's tired, hungry, has no supplies, and doesn't know what's going on. Hunt him, take him out now. Absalom says, well, that's a good advice. Maybe I'll do that. Hushai, what do you think? Hushai says, oh, no. Bad, bad choice. Don't do that. You know, you should sit here, amass your army, get a plan because David's smart. He's a warrior. He knows how to run. He knows how to hide. and He knows how to fight. Give yourself a chance to get a plan together. Absalom, who do you think he's going to listen to? Well, you remember what David prayed earlier? Well, look at verse 30. Uh, sorry, 17, verse 14. Chapter 17, verse 14. Since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined, in order to bring about Absalom's ruin. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than Ahithophel's advice. Isn't that awesome? Ahithophel actually was giving good advice in that way, that it was smart to take out David early before he got a chance to hunker in, to hunker down. And so yet God has deceived Ahithophel, has deceived him and turned his advice into foolishness. He listens to Hushai and he starts amassing an army to prepare for a giant battle against David. And yet we find here in this situation, as Absalom is trying to listen to which advisor, we find that Ahithophel also receives his end. Chapter 17, verse 23 says, when Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown, and he set his house in order, and he hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. This is the result of a very Judas-like moment, almost in striking similarities to the hanging of this traitor meets his righteous judgment, a Les Miserables kind of Javert situation of the suicide that he cannot r r reconcile the act that his law is not being followed and since he has broken the law, he must pay for that price. And so Ahithophel meets his end. And then in chapter 18, we see the defeat of Absalom. In chapter 18, if I were to summarize the beginning, is essentially David has gotten to time to gather and organize his force and Absalom has been gathering his forces and there's a, a giant battle, a civil war that occurs between the northern tribes of Israel and Judah and the southern tribes here with, with David and his men. And so they have a battle and the battle leads to the forest of Ephraim. Let me read to you in verse 6. 2 Samuel verse 6 says, and David's forces marched into the field to engage Israel in battle, which took place in the forest of Ephraim. Verse 7, Israel's army was defeated by David's soldiers, and the slaughter there was vast that day. 20,000 died, and the battle spread over the entire area. And that day, notice this phrase, on that day, <coughs> the forest claimed more people than the sword. Notice that. Striking phrase because you're going to see how the forest will also claim Absalom their king. Verse 9, Absalom was riding on his donkey or his mule when he happened to meet David's soldiers, right? I love how it just, because, you know, he just happened to meet David's soldiers. And when the mule went under a tangle of branches under a large oak tree, Absalom's head, other translations say his hair, was caught fast into the tree and the mule kept going. And he was suspended in midair. <laughs> and then one of the men saw him and informed Joab. And he said, I just saw Absalom hanging from an oak tree. This is the end of Absalom. Joab will eventually send his armor bearers to spear Absalom to death. And he will reach his tragic end. The conspiracy is over. The revolt and the rebellion is done with. And we have many dead slain. 
sin that has caused destruction to David's family and the nation of Israel. He's hanging from a tree by his own hair. (laughs) Pride will go before a fall. This is a tragic image, a, a striking image, almost strange in such ways that we're forced to look at this and see why is it that God would have this to happen. And I find it fascinating that David's own son, Solomon, who would come later and eventually become the king, writes these words. And I wonder if he thought about these words when he thought about his brother Absalom, who, who fell in this similar manner. For Solomon writes these words, Proverbs 26, 27, I'm reading from the NLT, it says, if you set a trap for others, you will get caught in it yourself. If you roll a boulder down upon others, it will crush you instead. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. (laughs) It's one of these tragic stories that teaches a lesson and we're left with one final image before we close. And the final image is striking as to the tragedy of the story, which ultimately reflects the tragic end of any of our stories if we allow pride to control us, if we allow our own pride to be our driving force instead of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and at the right time he will exalt us as it says in Peter. And so we find in in Absalom's tragic ending, it says in verse 16 through 18, let me read this, Joab blew the ram's horn This is chapter 18. And the troops took off in pursuit of Israel because Joab restrained them. And they, by the way, I I can't get into all these details, but the the ram's horn, do you remember how how Absalom said, the secret message, what was it? The secret message, when you hear the ram's horn blowing, then tell them, Absalom is king. When do they hear the ram's horn blowing? Right here in verse 18, when Absalom is dead. The ram's horn in verse 16, verse 17, they took Absalom, they threw him into a large pit in the forest, raised up a huge mound of stones over him, and all of Israel fled each to his own tent. There's fear. And yet, look at this little insertion in verse 18. We're meant to learn a lesson from this. For this was a lesson that was passed down in Hebrew tradition for hundreds and hundreds of years. In fact, today, you can go visit a place called Absalom's Monument. It's actually called Absalom's Tomb as well. It's in the Kidron Valley. Almost everybody believes it's not actually Absalom's tomb, but it's named this. Look at verse 18, and he was alive. Uh, When he was alive, sorry, Absalom had taken a pillar and raised it up for himself in the king's valley, since he thought, I have no son to preserve the memory of my name. So he named the pillar after himself. And today it's still called Absalom's monument today. He raised a pillar in honor of himself. His hair was big, his personality was big, he needed attention from everybody, and yet never even got it from the only person he wanted it from. He was used as an instrument of justice by God to teach David a lesson in some ways, and yet his sin carried him further than he wanted to go. His pride took control of him. His lust for power would be the very thing that would consume him, and yet he knew it all along. I'll never be remembered, and so in the King's Valley, he raised up a pillar of himself so people would remember And in fact, in Hebrew tradition, parents and many would bring their children down to Absalom's monument and everyone would pick up a stone and throw a stone at the monument to teach a child that this is what happens and this is what goes on when you disobey, when you allowed pride in your own heart to take over. It was a public lesson. I found it in a variety of records here. 
In fact, there's other things we could get into that they actually believe Herod Agrippa was one actually who was buried in Absalom's monument, which you can visit today. And potentially Herod Agrippa was that same person in Acts 12 who made himself to be a god before everyone and God struck him dead and worms consumed his body. You know that story in Acts 12? Herod Agrippa is believed to be buried in Absalom's tomb of what's known that today. Pride, people. Pride, the very source of all sin at the beginning. You won't. (laughs) Just eat the fruit, man. It's not a big of a deal. You'll be like God. And so we were, knowing good and evil. And yet our sin has entered the world, and yet I am grateful for Jesus Christ who did not allow pride to consume him or control him, but rather, as the word says in Philippians 2, Absalom being this antichrist and Jesus Christ being our savior, Philippians 2 says, adopt the same kind of attitude that Christ Jesus had. Existing in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, Jesus emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant who existed in the form of God, sorry, uh, form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. There's almost contrasting similarities between Absalom and Jesus. They're both hanging from a tree. They both rode on a donkey. They both hang from a tree and died in a public way and yet they had completely different motives. I'm so thankful for Jesus who humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And today we remember Absalom's monument as a monument for for ultimately the consequences of sin and for what pride can really cause and how pride can cause destruction in our lives. And yet we see the cross of Jesus Christ behind me here in this, in this form and in this shape. We see a cross and we know what that represents. It represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his great love that he has for you. The love that he has for humanity. That he was willing to give his life for you. And so today we look to the monument of Christ, you could say. The cross of Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for grace, to teach us what humility is to humble ourselves because when we do, we humble ourselves under the mighty name of Jesus so that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, under earth, and every tongue will confess that Lord Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's why today we're gonna close the service singing about Jesus. He is the center of all things. He is the one we look to, the one our hope is found in. And we can leave this place singing about Jesus who is our king, Jesus who is our savior. He is our leader, he is our father, he is our friend. We look to him and I pray that you would put your trust and faith in him today. In Jesus, and we're gonna pray. God, we, we look to Jesus, we look to you. For God, it is, is to you who we pray. We, we don't know where else to go. Lord, help us not to get to that point that David was at where he had nowhere else to turn that he had to turn to you. God, help us to seek you early and often. Help us to be humble each and every day as we come before you. God, knowing that you love us, you care for us, you, you sent your son to die for us. Lord, that we come before you and we're so grateful and thankful. God, we love you. We praise your good name today. For your name is above all other names. Nobody can erect a monument greater than yours. Nobody can steal a kingdom that's greater than your kingdom. 
Nobody can try to be a king more than you are the king of kings and lord of lords. We worship you, God. May you be the king of our hearts today. May you be the Jesus, the the one who has come, the anointed one, the savior of the world. Would you be alive and well within us today in this church forevermore? In Jesus' name.